tolerant landscaping and a thousand trees, pollinator districts throughout the site and a reduction of CO2 emissions with housing clustered near the light rail and future bus rapid transit corridor on Colorado Boulevard. Those opposed to referred question 2-0 say there was nothing ambiguous about the November 2021 vote on ballot initiatives 301 and 302. Throughout the city and in precincts neighboring the Park Hill Golf Course land, voters spoke loudly and clearly by a two to one margin in support of preserving the land's conservation easement and protecting open space. The Hancock administration's ballot measure presents a deceptive and inaccurate voter choice for the Park Hill Golf Course land between development and a golf course. If the city owned conservation easement is preserved, the land does not always need to be a golf course. The easement can be amended for other uses consistent with its open space and recreational conservation purposes. Using Measure 2A Parks and Open Space 0.25% sales tax money, the city could buy the land for its $5 million encumbered fair market value to become a fabulous new regional park. Breaking the conservation easement would be an illegal gift from taxpayers to the developer of at least $60 million, the value of the development rights. It's a false choice between affordable housing and a full new 155-acre regional park. Build around, not on, the invaluable Park Hill Golf Course land. Affordable housing should be built on land across the street, next to the 40th and Colorado train station, where extensive dense mixed-use development will take place, and on seven acres of vacant land north of the Park Hill Golf Course land. Once this green open space is gone, it's gone forever. We're seeing far too many overdose deaths. Families are being destroyed as a result of it. On the other side uh, of the equation, or the other side of this issue, we are seeing more and more violence as well. Many of these high-level cases, we are getting ghost guns, we're getting semi-automatic uh, weapons, we're getting assault-style rifles uh, on these particular cases. So it speaks to the... The Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Now, I'd like to call the March meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order. Edie, could you see who's here? <laughs> Jack Blumenthal? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Lorene Nath? Here. Charles Scheib? Here. Auditor Tim O'Brien? Here. All right, next item on our agenda is the approval of the February minutes. Is there a motion to approve the minutes? I so move. Second. You. Any discussion? Any comments? I thought they were well done. Um, all in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Okay, report on the administration of child welfare placement services. Emily, would you like to introduce yourself, your team, if you have any opening remarks? I think you do. Uh, this will be the time to do that. And then, Jay, I'll ask you to introduce yourself and your team and 
any opening remarks are welcome at that, that point in time. Okay, Emily. Good morning, Auditor, Audit Committee members. My name is Emily Owens-Gerber, and I'm the manager for our Administration of Child Welfare Placement Services audit we're presenting this morning. I'm, joining, I'm joined here by Shannon Scheich, Associate Auditor, Maria Durant, Senior Auditor, and Juan Gomez, Associate Auditor. I also want to thank several other team members who made significant contributions to the project but who are no longer with our office, including Catherine Friday, Senior Auditor, Tammy Rowell, Associate Auditor, and Justine Joy, Senior Auditor. Introductions. So can you hear me? Yep, good. Okay. Uh, I'm Jay Marine. I'm the executive director for the Department of Human Services. Sitting to my left is Justin Sykes, our division director over financial services. Sitting to my right is Josie Berry, who at the time of the uh, completion of the audit was the director of the Division of Child Welfare and Adult Protective Services. Josie is now the Deputy Executive Director over Prevention and Protection Services. Sitting in the first row, uh, joining us this morning are uh, Rob Baker, who's our uh, Internal Audit Supervisor, and Katie Smith, who's the Director of the Human Services Legal Services Division and uh, had been very involved in the conduct of the audit. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you and your team uh, for your cooperation and responsiveness. I know it's a lot to have an audit team asking lots of questions and taking your time, but we really appreciate all of the responsiveness from your team. And just to take a quick moment, uh, we focused this audit on kinship care, which has been an um, emphasis happening at the federal level to try and reduce the trauma happening when children do have to be removed from their home. So in light of this recent push, uh, to do this, we thought it would be a, a valuable place to look to see where we could offer areas for improvement to help the department make sure that they're supporting the caregivers and the children as much as they can. So our audit report includes two findings, one additional information section and three appendices. Before beginning the overview of the background section, I want to take a moment to describe the challenges we face getting access to data needed for the audit as we describe in Appendix A. When we began this audit in February of last year, Denver Human Services officials assured us we'd be given access to any records needed for the audit. However, after we requested information from TRAILS, we were not provided with requested data until more than three months after our request, which required us to delay completion of the audit. Additionally, the Budget Management Office denied our request to review documentation submitted by Denver Human Services to support a request for two additional full-time employees in the Child Welfare Division's Placement Services Group. Although the city attorney's office supported the budget office's denial, we believe the authority granted to the auditor under Denver Charter provides us the ability to review this information. Now Shannon will walk us through the background section of our report. Yeah, if I could uh, interrupt for a minute. And I think, you know, in conversations with the city attorney, um, they have reaffirmed the auditor's access to information and they will be reaffirming that with the uh, assistant city attorney. So the, there is only one message coming out of the city attorney's office. So, shall we continue? Thank you. Denver Human Services Child Welfare Division investigates, excuse me, investigates reports of suspected abuse or neglect and provides essential services to families, including temporarily removing a child from their home when their home is deemed unsafe. As we describe on page one of the report, 
When a child must be removed from their home, the agency will seek temporary care for the child in an out-of-home placement, such as in traditional foster care, a group home, or in the care of relatives or close family friends known as kinship care. And could you possibly either move the microphone? I, I think people may be having difficulty hearing the important things you have to say. Is this better? Kinship care is sought before other types of out-of-home placements, as the child and caregiver already have a close bond and trusting relationship, and these placements allow for fewer disruptions and greater stability in the child's life. As shown in figure one on page two of the report, and here on the slide, our analysis of Denver Human Services child placement records found that about 1,600 local children were placed in kinship care for at least one day between January 2018 and June 2022. Of those children, about half spent 100% of their placement time in kinship care, and the other half spent at least some time in other types of placements in addition to kinship care. On pages three through five of the report, we describe how social services are provided in Colorado and give an overview of Denver Human Services Child Welfare Division and its staff. Government-administered social services, including child welfare services, are supervised by the state of Colorado and run at the county level. As such, the agency is required to use TRAILS, the state's information system for child welfare case management, but the county is unable to independently make changes to this information system. Denver Human Services is comprised of various divisions, including the Child Welfare Division, which oversees kinship placements and certifies caregivers, among other services. Each child welfare case involves various caseworkers at different stages throughout the case, including intake caseworkers, ongoing caseworkers, and kinship support caseworkers. As we discussed on page four of the report, six operations assistants on the certification, training, and recruitment team are in the unit that's primarily responsible for certifying kinship caregivers. Three of these staff primarily focus on helping caregivers with becoming certified. We'll refer to these three operations assistants as the certification team. The other three operations assistants on the certification, training, and recruitment team have other duties and only assist the certification team with certifying kinship caregivers when needed. These six operations assistants are not required to be certified caseworkers. Also, caseworkers on the kinship support team may assist caregivers with initial paperwork and be called on to assist with aspects of the caregiver certification process if the volume of cases requires it. On page five of the report, we describe the process of removing a child from the home. Figure two on page six of the report provides a high-level overview of this process that begins with an allegation of suspected abuse or neglect being reported. If the report meets criteria for assessment of abuse or neglect, the Child Welfare Division investigates them to determine whether there are safety concerns for the child. If safety concerns are identified and the, these concerns cannot be mitigated, the child must be removed from the home. Before a child can be placed with a caregiver, however, the caregiver must be vetted with background checks and a caseworker must visit the home to determine whether the placement option is safe. Ultimately, the goal is to work with the family to make the child's home safe so that the child can reunite with their family and return home. However, if the child cannot return home, other permanent placement options are available, such as giving custody of the child to a relative. On page seven of the report, we describe the Family First Prevention Services Act, which was passed by Congress in 2018. 
This law sought to reduce the trauma that comes with placing children outside their home and increase the use of kinship care. Denver Human Services adopted the same approach, seeking kinship caregivers before other types of placements when children cannot safely remain in their homes. Kinship caregivers can receive monthly financial support to help with the costs of having a child placed in their care once they become fully certified. On average, a certified caregiver can receive around $1,200 per month. Caregivers who are not certified are not eligible for this financial support, but they can apply for other federal assistance programs like food stamps. The process to become certified is extensive and time-consuming, requiring caregivers to complete many hours of training submit various documents, pass two rounds of background checks, and pass a home study assessment that evaluates whether the caregiver is fit to care for the child. To maintain their certification, caregivers must also go through a recertification process each year, which involves additional training, more documents, and additional background checks. On page eight of the report, we introduced Denver Human Services Impress Fund, which is a cash account that provides emergency financial support to those the agency serves. The agency's financial services division is responsible for managing the Impress Fund, and the fund is available to all divisions within the agency. The Child Welfare Division regularly uses the Impress Fund to help the families they serve. Denver Human Services Impress Fund must keep a fixed balance of $80,000. The agency's financial services division is responsible for replenishing the account as money is spent to maintain this fixed balance. As shown in figure three on page nine of the report and here on the slide, Denver Human Services spent about $4 million from the Impress Fund from 2019 through 2021 with roughly $590,000 spent on child welfare expenses. In 2022, the agency had spent $1.2 million from the Impress Fund by mid-September, with about 150,000 of that spent on child welfare expenses. Denver Human Services Impress Fund is governed by elements of the city's fiscal accountability rules. Before being revised in 2018, the rule governing petty cash funds mentioned Impress Fund specifically. This rule puts a $125 limit on petty cash transactions. In 2013, Denver Human Services received a waiver from the city's controller's office to allow them to exceed this limit to be able to support families and their emergency needs. As described on page 38 of the report, our objectives for this audit were to evaluate the effectiveness of Denver Human Services kinship caregiver certification process and to analyze whether controls over the agency's impress fund are consistent with city rules and leading practices. Our work included reviewing Denver Human Services Kinship Care Program, processes associated with kinship caregiver certification, and caseworker management since 2018. We also examined agency controls for its impress fund. The time period we focused on for our analyses of the kinship care program and caseworker management was January 1, 2018 through June 30, 2022. For our review of impress fund spending, we reviewed fund activity from the beginning of 2019 through mid-September 2022. This concludes the background portion of our presentation. I'll now pause to allow for any questions or comments from the audit committee or agency representatives. Questions or comments, why don't we continue? Thank you, Shannon. 
Finding one, which begins on page 11 of the report, states the caregiver certification process lacks formal training and guidance. Overall, we found that training for staff on the kinship caregiver certification process is informal and inconsistent. Not only did staff report that they could benefit from better training on the process, but we also found that most existing training doesn't focus on this process. We also observed inconsistencies in the types of training that members of the certification training and recruitment team received. As we described earlier, the certification training and recruitment team is the unit responsible for certifying kinship caregivers. But three of the six operations assistants in this unit, which is considered the certification team, are primarily responsible for certifying kinship caregivers. On the kinship support team, caseworkers may assist caregivers with initial paperwork and with aspects of the caregiver certification process if the volume of cases requires it. On page 12 of the report, we explain that survey results support what various staff that assist kinship caregivers with certification told us. 40% of the 20 survey respondents who assist caregivers with kinship caregiver certification requirements felt they had not received adequate training on the requirements, and about 56% of 42 survey respondents wanted regular training on updates to the federal and state rules. During the audit, we found that placement services does not have a written training policy or plan that outlined training requirements for staff, and it doesn't have a process in place to develop individual training plans for staff as we explain on page 12 to 13 of the report. Instead of developing a training policy or plan, the Child Welfare Division relies on state and county training that is designed for certified caseworkers and on-the-job training. The state's training program offers training to staff that want to become certified caseworkers and who need to maintain their certification on an annual basis. The division provides county-specific training for certified caseworkers as a supplement to the state's training. These training opportunities are not designed for staff that certify kinship caregivers and do not focus on the kinship caregiver certification process. The state offers only one course that is specific to kinship caregiver certification. We were told that staff new to the certification team are required to take this course, even though it's not documented in a division policy. The certification team is primarily trained on the job by their supervisor or by experienced team members. And we were told the quality of on-the-job training can differ across the division with some staff receiving better on-the-job training than others. Our survey results showed that 76% of respondents gained most of their knowledge through on-the-job experience rather than formal training. On page 13, we described some inconsistencies uh, that we identified during our review of the certification training and recruitment team's training records for a two-year period. One certification team member had not signed up to take the state-offered caregiver certification course until eight months after being hired. We also noted variations in the type and amount of training taken. One certification team member attended additional training related to supporting kinship caregivers, but the other two team members had not taken this training. The other three team members who may assist the certification team with certifying kinship caregivers 
took training on a variety of subjects, but received limited training on the caregiver certification process. On page 14 through 15, we describe how staff outside of the certification team who may be asked to assist with certifying caregivers told us that not having a full understanding of the caregiver certification process prevents them from helping when the certification team needs extra support. The certification team also expressed concerns about outside staff not understanding the certification requirements and who is responsible for certain steps in the certification process. This lack of understanding has resulted in discrepancies in caregivers' steps and documentation and could lead to kinship caregivers being given bad advice or inaccurate information. We discuss how this lack of understanding was evident in our survey results. For example, only 40% of the 71 respondents understood that the county must have legal custody of a child for a kinship caregiver to be eligible for certification. Also, only 41% of 71 respondents understood that they should consider how soon a case may be wrapped up before encouraging a kinship caregiver to seek certification, given the number of requirements and several months involved. On page 14, we discuss leading practices, which suggest that training policies are essential for building knowledge and skills. For example, an effective training system should include a training plan that addresses lessons, methods, and proposed outcomes and requires individual learning plans. And the training plan should involve regular evaluations of trainings offered and updates as necessary. In addition to the lack of training, we found the Child Welfare Division lacks clear up-to-date procedures that outline the steps staff must follow to certify kinship caregivers as discussed on page 15 of the report. We also found gaps and inconsistencies in other tools the certification team uses to guide them through this caregiver certification process. We provide specific examples of gaps and inconsistencies on page 16 to 17 of the report. For example, in response to our requests for existing policies and procedures, we were given an undated draft procedure that was uploaded to an internal shared drive in February 2018. But at the time, the certification team's supervisor was updating another draft that a different employee had created since 2018. Also, in the absence of approved current procedures, the certification team has relied on a tracking checklist and a flowchart to guide them through the caregiver certification process. While most steps aligned among the documents, the tracking checklist had some inconsistencies and the flowchart was not clear and accurate as we describe on page 16 of the report. We also found some tools were not dated and outdated guidance was still available for staff to access on the agency's shared drive. We discuss how survey feedback receive, we receive from caseworkers and support staff in the Child Welfare Division revealed concerns about inadequate guidance. On page 15, we state how only 30% of 20 survey respondents who assist caregivers with certification requirements said they could find the answer to a question about the kinship caregiver certification process in documented policies and procedures. On page 17, we mention how the certification team frequently has to clear up inconsistencies and correct misconceptions 
that other child welfare teams communicate to caregivers about the certification process. In our review of exit interviews conducted with child welfare division employees separating from the agency between 2018 and 2022, we noted on page 18 how one employee commented that Denver Human Service employees don't seem to have a standard of work with which, which leads to caseworkers and supervisors providing inconsistent service to families and coworkers. Employees also talked about a lack of training, guidance, and standard practices as reasons for leaving the agency. The inconsistent training practices and inadequate procedures associated with the caregiver certification process are due to the division's lack of a formal, structured approach to managing the caregiver certification process and staff responsible for it. More specifically, the division does not have a formal training program associated with the caregiver certification process or a process for developing, maintaining, and updating procedures. Also, caseworker turnover only compounds the need for more training and guidance, a discussion we begin on page 18. On page 19, we discuss that the Child Welfare Division estimates about 25% of its positions are vacant, in addition to the rates of turnover typical for child welfare agencies. In our analysis of combined turnover, which includes both staff leaving the agency as well as those transferring to different jobs within Denver Human Services, we found turnover rates exceeded the optimal threshold of 10 to 12% for both placement services staff and ingoing and outgoing caseworkers. However, as figure four shows on page 20, internal turnover was higher than external turnover for both groups and combined turnover rates for intake and ongoing caseworkers were consistently at or above the recommended threshold. Appendix C explains how we calculated staff turnover rates. On page 21 through 22, we discuss how the division is taking steps to improve caseworker and support staff retention by partnering with the Office of Human Resources to administer annual surveys and exit interviews to staff who leave the agency and involving staff in decisions on restructuring and making pay equity adjustments. Also, the division is participating in a workload study commissioned by the State Department of Human Services to help inform how they evaluate caseloads going forward. However, the division has not developed a plan to address staff turnover using practices recommended by leading child wel welfare organizations or resources offered by the city. Leading organizations suggest offering alternative schedules, remote work options, job sharing, administrative support positions, and seasonal positions. They also suggest using a documented retention plan to help ensure approaches are relevant, that strategies complement one another, and to allow staff to understand management's commitment to them. Child Welfare Division cannot ensure staff are equipped to effectively serve the children in need, their families and their caregivers without a formal structured approach to training, maintaining procedures, and reducing staff turnover. On pages 23 and 24 of the report, we make four recommendations. 
I'll read the first two recommendations before pausing for questions or comments. Recommendation 1.1, managers in the Child Welfare Division's Placement Services Group should develop and document a formal training plan specific to the Kinship Caregiver Certification Team. This plan should include the detailed steps on page 23, such as the types of training required and how often training should be taken after hiring and how the division will track and document training. The training plan should also identify which staff should be trained in the kinship caregiver certification process and the types of training they should receive and how often. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by May 31st, 2023. Recommendation 1.2, managers in the Child Welfare Division's Placement Services Group should develop and document current guidance on the kinship caregiver certification process that accurately describes all required steps, who is responsible for those steps and for updating the procedures and how often the procedures should be reviewed and updated. In addition, the procedure should include an effective date. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by May 31st, 2023. I will pause briefly here to allow questions and thoughts from the audit committee or agency representatives. Questions from the committee? Yeah. Uh, I'm unclear as to whether the certification requirements are uh, promulgated by the state or th they're by the state. Yes. So uh, did, uh, did we look at any other uh, counties and how, how well they um, get kinship care through the process? No. No, we didn't do any benchmarking related to that. Wouldn't there be training available in that process out there somewhere from other counties or uh, that could speed up the, the implementation? Well, I think Denver has their own training program, which the state actually adopted as their formal program um, through the child welfare training system. So Denver is seen as one of the um, implementing counties and a leader in this area. Um, we have a high percentage of kids that are in kinship care. Um, that's something that we're really proud of. So um, not that there aren't great practices in other counties, but the state did adopt um, our, our training program that we had developed. So was that training program for the caregivers or for the caseworkers? It's for the caseworkers uh, and the process of, of moving um, kin through that certification process. But, but you agree that the percentage of kin care that is um, certified is not what you, not what it ought to be, correct? I wouldn't say that to be true. There are many kin that don't want to be certified. Um, there are many kin that can't be certified. Um, so we certify if that's something that they're interested in doing, but not all kin are interested in being a certified provider. I think they can be, and I think that there's a lot of discussion in that area, and certainly some of the um, legislative efforts that we've heard this year and last year have focused on that, trying to be more supportive of kin. So it's not a policy, it's a, it's a statute? Correct. Uh, of course. Um, yeah, I've got a couple baseline questions. So we're talking about six 
people who are kinship people like that, and you've got turnover, which is understandable. And we're also talking about training other people, right? So um, they, three people on that team conduct the certification for kin. Um, so they don't train other people to do certification of kin, but the kinship providers themselves go through training to be certified. So that team does both. And how many people do, are they training? Uh, for the kinship, kinship providers? Yes. Can be many. Um, we have hundreds of children in kinship care, so. Yeah, well, let me uh, just make an observation. Um, uh, I teach in the cardiac rehab program at CU. And um, it inches. And in any case, in order, as a volunteer, in order to be a volunteer there, I mean, they've got a bureaucracy of their own, I can assure you. But what they did was um, they put a whole bunch of training on a website including testing. And I mean, I learned an incredible amount going through this and I was just really impressed by you know, how much you could do this way and how effective it was and how effective the, the tests I had to take were. And so given that you've got so many people going through this, um, I'd, I'd just like to throw out a suggestion, and I know it's expensive to put something like that together. Um, you, you might want to consider looking into that methodology and, and talk to the people in the volunteer area uh, at Anschutz about how they did what they did, because I can, I can just appreciate the difficulties, I mean, what you guys are dealing with is, is, a, is a major societal problem. And it isn't easy. I can make a comment. Uh, during the pandemic, we um, had to switch many of our trainings for our kinship providers to virtual um, means, some of those recorded. So um, some of our trainings are offered in that way to kinship providers, and also some kin don't have access to technology. So we do have staff that go out to their homes and do one-on-one -on -one training for different individuals um, to meet language needs or, or other needs. So we, we have a hybrid approach. Um, we're adaptive in that way. Um, one of the things with the pandemic, um, that really strengthened um, some of the supports that we can provide to kin. Okay, we got a couple more recommendations here. Next recommendation, recommendation 1.3. Managers in the Child Welfare Division's Placement Services Group should review the agency's internal shared drive and any other file storage areas to identify and remove outdated procedures associated with the kinship caregiver certification process. Then, managers should identify where current procedures should be kept going forward and communicate that to all relevant staff. The agency agreed with the recommendation and provided an implementation date of February 27, 2023. We can pause to discuss this one or I can keep going. Continue. Okay. 
Recommendation 1.4, the Child Welfare Division should develop and document a plan to reduce caseworker and support staff turnover. This plan should include the items on page 24, which include strategies for improving caseworker and support staff retention using best practices, a description of the division's assessment of retention, staff retention strategies, and the individuals responsible for reviewing and updating the retention plan and timeframes. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by May 31st, 2023. That concludes finding two, and I can still pause again if we'd like to discuss those two recommendations or anything else before we move on. Questions from the committee, comments from the department? Looks like uh, the file storage has already been completed. Thank you, Maria. On page 25 of the report, we begin our discussion of finding two, which states policies and procedures for the Denver Human Services Impress Fund are insufficient and outdated. The Financial Services Division developed two documents with guidelines for Denver Human Services staff to request Impress funds. However, in our review of these two procedural documents, we found they do not include important requirements described in one of the city's fiscal accountability rules that used to apply to impress funds. Additionally, the documents do not cover actual activities staff are doing to make sure requests for the use of these funds are adequately reviewed, approved, and safeguarded. On page 26 of the report, we discuss the city's fiscal rule for petty cash accounts. According to the city controller, aspects of the fiscal rule apply to impress funds even though all references to impress funds were removed from the petty cash rules in 2018. Requirements spelled out in the fiscal rule include assigning a custodian for the account, rotating the custodian, and establishing how often the procedure should be reviewed and updated. Also, federal standards say management should define responsibilities and review procedures regularly to ensure they remain relevant. Other gaps we noted in the existing procedures include the fact that there is no reference to how the division safeguards blank impress checks and the extra approvals needed for impress requests exceeding $1,000. Additionally, we learned that other divisions within Denver Human Services may develop their own procedures and required forms for impress fund requests, in addition to those required by the Financial Services Division, um, which is not mentioned in the Financial Services Policies and Procedures. At least one division, the Child Welfare Division, has its own required request form with additional review and approval requirements. Towards the end of our audit, division managers provided our team with a copy of draft procedures that document the division's security practices for its vaults and safes, including those used to store impress fund checks. The draft procedures address elements described in the petty cash fiscal rule, along with other leading practices regarding restricting access to and tracking who accesses <coughs> safes and vaults. However, the draft procedures had not yet been approved or distributed to staff by the time we finished uh, field work in December of 2022. Without detailed procedures for its impress fund and clarity about which fiscal rules apply to it, Denver Human Services risks spending the money on other purposes than the urgent need it is intended for. To address these gaps, we offer three recommendations. The first two recommendations are related to one another, so I will read them consecutively before pausing to allow for questions. First, recommendation 2.1 on page 30 of the report states, 
Denver Human Services Financial Services Division should apply for another uh, waiver from the Denver uh, from the controller's office to clarify which elements of fiscal accountability rule 3.2 apply to Denver Human Services Impress Fund. Denver Human Services agrees to implement this recommendation by May 31st, 2023. Next, recommendation 2.2 on page 31 of the report states, Denver Human Services Financial Services Division should develop, document, and approve more robust procedures for its impressed fund. The procedure should mention which specific requirements from fiscal, fiscal accountability rule 3.2 apply based on guidance from the controller's office. At a minimum, procedures should de detail the elements listed on page 31, such as how often the procedures should be reviewed and updated, and the types and frequency of required reconciliations. Denver Human Services agrees to implement this recommendation by May 31st, 2023. I will pause here to allow questions and thoughts from the Audit Committee and Agency. Only thing I would like to clarify, um, slide 10 of the presentation and page eight of the audit report describes the impressed fund as a cash account. Um, I just want it to be very clear that this is a checking account that we maintain. It's not actually physical cash that uh, we're Cash equivalent. Uh, the cash account the agency uses is what the report says. And so I just want to be clear that it's uh, right. not a <clears throat> cash account that we're maintaining physical cash. It's a checking account. Noted. Thank you. Any uh, questions or comments about the recommendations? About the impress fund? Yeah, I guess I, I just had one other question about, there seems to be, and maybe I just missed this <clears throat> in the report, but you, you said that a number of kin, kinship caregivers or the reason for the smallest, smaller percentage of certification for kinship caregivers was that they didn't seek that and because they didn't seek the financial assistance. But didn't the survey show that a number of, of kinship caregivers um, had needs that they felt were not being met? We were not able to survey the kinship caregivers, so that was really oh, it was the kinship caregiver caseworkers. Case yes, but they thought that the kinship <laughs> caregivers needed more support. Yes, financial support. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so I just wanted to. So we have a disagreement there of whether the kinship caregivers are getting financial support in a timely manner or not. If you're non-certified, you're not eligible for financial support, and that's um, driven by federal guidelines. So should some of those guidelines change, they could be eligible for some financial support, um, and there's something um, pending now. So that could be happening. They're not eligible if they're not certified, and there are some kin that are not eligible to be certified. Um, it could be a lot of different things. They could, ha they could have um, um, different issues related to their legal status here um, or other issues that may not allow them to be certified. Um, so there could be some changes in that area coming, um, but not right now. If they're not certified, then they're not eligible for that financial assistance. Um, we do use the impressed fund to support in a lot of different ways, whether that's through 
rental payments or car seats or cribs or different things like that. So we try and meet their needs in, in other ways. So the discrepancy might be in the, the attitude, not or the attitude, the impression of the caseworkers that all but, you know, for some paperwork, they could get some financial assistance, but that's not the reason. If the guidelines were different, they could be eligible and there's a want for equity in that space. And I think a, a wish for another source of financial support outside of that certification process that's as substantial as the support they get when they're certified. Yeah. Thank you. So back to the impress fund for a minute. I mean, there are you know, significant amount of transactions, including uh, the child, the kinship care. Do you have, do you periodically review that, to see that the expenditures from that fund are in line with your policies and procedures? Uh, yes, so we conduct monthly uh, reconciliations of those uh, transactions. Uh, each transaction goes through a fairly rigorous review. Um, in our uh, Denver Human Services peak performance presentations, which are uh, quarterly for the Financial Services Division, um, that has been one area that we've spotlighted in terms of the volume. Uh, what we saw was during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there was a big uptick in rental assistance. Um, besides just the child welfare uh, support that the Impressed Fund is able to provide, that's also uh, the mechanism with which we make general assistance payments, uh, which is for uh, people who uh, in most cases are facing imminent eviction. And so that's also uh, the vehicle we use to make those payments. And so we do conduct periodic reviews, uh, data analysis, um, vari various sorts of um, well, I, I appreciate your answer. Thank you. I mean, how do you balance the I can see the need to immediately be able to get funds in the hands of someone. And how do you balance that with, you know, just the whole process to getting things approved? Uh, so, so that's really why we have the Impress Fund, is, is so that we're not going through the controller's offices, accounts payable kind of regular process. And so we've um, kind of timed that process. And uh, although it's possible that it can be expedited in some uh, circumstances, what we've found is that in standard business environment, it takes about eight to 10 business days for a new uh, provider to be entered into the city's financial system uh, and then issued a check. And so if a family is at imminent risk of eviction, that's where we've got this impressed account uh, that we're able to issue a payment directly to that landlord uh, releasing company uh, without going through that uh, time, slightly time-consuming process of... Uh, I'm, I'm not f referring to the controller's process, but your process to approve, I mean, is it immediate? Is it... No, it, it's not immediate. Uh, we, uh, we require, we comport with uh, fiscal accountability rules on backup documentation, so we won't just issue a payment. We, we collect a W-9 from that vendor. Uh, we will require something demonstrating the need, where, where we won't just issue a payment based on word of mouth, we would require uh, the demand letter um, or, or a billing statement from that uh, lease agreement. Uh, and so it is a very robust process where the agency itself that's requesting the payment, uh -huh. uh, there is somebody who's typically an eligibility technician or a 
urgently through the impressed fund that then needs to be approved by that program area. Uh, so in the case of child welfare, uh, those payments are going through multiple layers of approval. Then the payment comes over to the financial services division uh, where we conduct a review uh, trying to validate that the backup documentation would meet the requirements of fiscal accountability rule. If the check is over $1,000, uh, we require two signatures and, and so double review. Um, and so we can turn that around very quickly, um, but we don't compromise that review process to issue checks. Can you, when you say very quickly, what does that mean in terms of days? A, a, a day or two. Day you know, or, oftentimes okay. these are Right. Okay. Florian? Well, that raises another question in my mind. So, <laughs> why would, does, does uh, it often result in a move when, when kin start taking care of a, a child that's in your services? Uh, why would there be an urgent landlord need as a result of, of this kinship thing? I can understand food, clothing, that kind of thing. But I'd welcome Josie's thoughts here as well. But um, many, many of the families who uh, are kin providers are um, lower income and may face risk of eviction. And so that would be very detrimental to the placement of that child with the kin if that family uh, were not to be able to. Another form of assistance unrelated really to the kinship care. Correct. This is kind of a one off uh, in cases of urgent need, that, which is separate from the ongoing payments that can be made to kin care providers. And not as a result, really, of the kinship care. Correct. I, I mean, it, it, um, it's, it's typically as a result of that <clears throat> family's living situation. Um, we request it routinely for bio parents all the time um, when they're facing eviction. So we use it for kin when there are different struggles. But by no means is that the only population that is supported in that way. So through an appendix? Or two. We have one more recommendation. Okay. A recommendation 2.3 on page 31 of the report states, Denver Human Services Financial Services Division should finalize its draft procedures regarding secure storage devices, including its authorization form. Once the procedures are approved, the division should implement them and communicate them to all relevant staff. Denver Human Services agreed to this recommendation and provided an imp implementation date of February 28th, 2023. Okay, and I'll pause here to allow for any um, questions or thoughts uh, from the Audit Committee and Agency, if there are any. Okay, all right, thank you. And uh, if there are no further questions, um, Emily will continue our presentation of the remaining sections of the report. Thank you, Juan. The additional information section titled Underlying Challenges Facing Child Welfare Caseworkers and Staff begins on page 35 of the report. In this section, we describe factors outside of Denver Human Services control that affect how I can support kinship caregivers. As a provider of services locally within a state-supervised county-administered child welfare system, Denver Human Services must follow rules and requirements set at the federal or state level. However, agency staff have observed that current requirements associated with the kinship caregiver certification process restrict their ability to adequately support these kinship caregivers. More specifically, becoming certified can provide kinship caregivers with helpful monthly financial support, but many caregivers either choose not to or are unable to meet the extensive requirements associated with becoming certified. 
Also, the caregivers who need this certification-related financial assistance the most may face the most barriers to becoming certified. In Figure 5, as shown here and on page 36 of the report, we present our analysis of caregivers who reported moderate to urgent need in various areas and what percent of those caregivers reporting various types of need were certified and receiving the associated financial support. As the figure shows, of the more than 1,400 kinship caregivers in our population, 63% had a record of going through a needs assessment process with their caseworker. Of those, 789 kinship caregivers reported moderate to urgent need in various areas, but between 77% and 88% of them were not receiving this certification-related financial support to help them meet these needs. And these results support what we heard from caseworkers, that these certification-related payments are not a major source of assistance for most kinship caregivers who reported need, and state or federal action may be needed to reduce certification requirements or identify other sources of financial support. Now, we were unable to review other public assistance these caregivers may be receiving, but considering the emphasis Denver Human Services and others have placed on certification payments as the best available source of support for kinship caregivers, this limited number of kinship caregivers who became certified and received this financial support is noteworthy. So at this time, I'll pause for a moment for any questions or comments related to that section. Okay. Our first appendix begins on page 41 of the report and includes our description of the resistance we face getting access to requested data for the audit, as we already described. Our second appendix begins on page 44 with an overview of TRAILS, the state database that maintains child welfare case information. The state of Colorado owns the system and is responsible for maintaining and updating it. Although it is the repository of most child welfare case information, Data quality issues, a lack of guidance on using the system, and system design are well-known problems with TRAILS, which prompted an overhaul in 2017 that eventually ran out of money. Now the state's Office of Information Technology manages upgrades and change requests. Because TRAILS is the state system of record for child welfare data, we collected data from it to help us understand the population of kinship caregivers and children in their care. However, we expected some data to be incomplete or inaccurate due to the known issues with TRAILS, and we discussed these limitations or potential issues with the data where relevant with each analysis. The population of children and caregivers that we included in our analyses were those children who spent at least one day in kinship care between January 1, 2018 and June 30, 2022, and the kinship caregiver households associated with them and we collected the data on September 14th, 2022, so our data is a snapshot of the status of these cases as of that day. One important fact I wanna highlight is that children in our population may have experienced other types of out-of-home placement, as well as kinship care, such as foster care or group homes, but the factor they all have in common is they all spend at least one day in the care of a kinship caregiver, and we chose to show all types of placements these children may have experienced, beyond their time with a kinship caregiver, so we could understand the full breadth of their experiences being placed out of home. The results of our review of these children in kinship care during the time period we focused on begins on page 46. A few examples of what we learned about this population of children in kinship care include the average number of placements across the more than 1,600 children in our population was 3.78, 
while the average number of placements for those children who only experienced placement with a kinship caregiver was 1.77. Figure 7 on page 48 shows the placement data for those children who only experienced placement with a kinship caregiver, shown in light blue, as well as placement data for those children who experienced other types of placement in addition to a kinship placement, shown in dark blue. As you can see, those children who only spent time in a kinship care placement experienced fewer placements than children who experienced other types of out-of-home placement besides kinship care. Figure 8 shows the number of children in our population who experienced various types of out-of-home placement. These categories are not mutually exclusive though, so some children in our population experienced kinship care as well as these other types of placement. Figure 9 on page 49 shows the number of unique caregivers the children in our population experienced. Children may be placed with the same caregiver multiple times, so this figure attempts to account for that, showing only the number of caregivers that child was placed with, regardless of the number of times the child may have been placed with that caregiver. And we see a similar pattern here, that those children who only experienced placement with a kinship caregiver, shown in light green, Tend to tended to have fewer unique caregivers than those children who experienced other types of placement in addition to kinship care, shown in dark green. Figure 10 on page 50 shows the demographic information for our population of children. As you can see, children ages 5 through 11 made up the largest portion of children in our population. You also notice how little ethnicity data was recorded in trails for these children. Unfortunately, this means that neither we, Denver Human Services, nor the state have an accurate way to track this important demographic detail for these children placed out of home. Next, our analyses related to the kinship caregivers and their households begins on page 51. We focused only on individuals who were active kinship caregivers for at least one day during the time frame we reviewed. And in total, there were more than 1,400 kinship caregivers associated with the more than 1,600 children in kinship care during this time. Only 18% of the kinship caregivers in our population were or became certified, as shown in Figure 11. Figure 12 on page 52 shows the relationship of the kinship caregivers to the children in their care. And as you can see, grandparents made up the largest group of kinship caregivers, followed by aunts and uncles, and those that were not related to the child. On pages 53 through 56, we show the results of our other analyses, including the average time a kinship caregiver spent with the child in their care, the total amount paid to kinship caregivers who were certified over time, and the number of kinship caregivers and children supported by the certification-related financial assistance. The number of days after a child was placed with a kinship caregiver that it took for a caseworker to conduct an initial needs assessment with the caregiver, and the type of need along with the urgency of that need reported by kinship caregivers. Figure 15 on page 57 shows the demographic breakdown for the kinship caregiver households in our population. Like the demographic data for our children, you can see that the race and ethnicity data were incomplete for a majority of our population of kinship caregiver households. So again, this means that neither we, Denver Human Services, or the state have an accurate way to understand the demographic information for caregivers taking care of children who have removed, been removed from their home. 
The next section of this appendix discusses our analysis of the typical number of child welfare workers that kinship caregivers likely had to interact with. As discussed on page 58, the staff assignment records we analyzed excluded some data, which means our results likely represent the minimum range of staff the caregivers may interact with. As we discussed on page 60, those staff who are most likely to work directly with kinship caregivers includes intake caseworkers, ongoing caseworkers, and select placement services teams. Focusing on just these caseworkers and placement services support staff, we found that at minimum, caregivers are likely interacting with between 4 and 6.2 child welfare staff. At this time, I'll pause for any comments or questions related to Appendix B. Yeah, I've got, um, I'm, this is like a citizen question. Um, my recollection, and sometimes it isn't as accurate as I'd like it to be, is that a number of years ago, there was an issue over data related to the whole question of releasing data to the auditor's office. Um, by the Department of Human Services. And I really appreciate that uh, Auditor O'Brien has been able to get a legal resolution to getting certain data. But as, as just an ordinary citizen, I've got this question. Can, can you explain in plain English why you would fight this kind of thing? What, in other words, what is it that, you know, requires you to have a lawyer in attendance here? Uh, and, and why that is and how that furthers the public good? Well, I will say we don't own the data in trails. It's a state system and the state owns the data. Um, so we received a memo during the middle of the audit from the state around what information could be provided and to who. So that took some time to sort through um, and was new for us as well. We had not um, seen that memo, known that it was going to be released, but I think that that impacted the time frame and what we could provide and when we could provide it during that time frame. And if I could uh, just add on to that, and it was something that's already been highlighted in the delivery of the report, but it, it just underscores the relationship that Denver Department of Human Services has with the state-supervised Colorado Department of Human Services. So we're really following guidance and direction that are being set and imposed onto the uh, our county department, as our other counties. Yeah, but let me take this a step further. Um, there was an issue in terms of what the cost of building the platforms out at Denver International Airport were, and there was a potential fight between several governmental agencies, namely the airport, RTD, over a whole bunch of things. And one of the things that was raised as an issue there is that, you know, gee, what we tried to avoid, they tried to avoid, was having lawsuits between governmental agencies. And I thought that was a very good point. And so I, I, I just, the problem I'm having is, yeah, 
why are we having this problem? In other words, is, is there so much antagonism between the state and the county in terms of this issue? But somehow something's not working. It's, it, it, excuse me, it appears to me something isn't working and I may be wrong, but I'm just trying to understand you know, why all this legal rigmarole uh, we're not talking about private information here that really impacts uh, personal privacy. I'm, I'm just trying to understand it because as a citizen, I find it rather upsetting, very, very candidly, and it's nothing personal, but I'm just trying to understand it. I would say Trails has a lot of identifying mm -hmm. personal information that should be kept confidential. Um, the general public and many are not allowed to know who is involved in our system for very good reasons um, without a court order. So um, there is a lot of um, sensitive private information that Trails contains and I think for that reason it's, it's protected. Yeah, but I guess my question is when I take a look at these statistics and I take a look at the overall report, that kind of stuff can be summarized because the, audit the auditor's office summarized all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm, I'm, just having, I'm, I'm just having a problem understanding the gap. Yeah, well, we look at confidential information all the time. Um, I think, and I'm not trying to defend uh, the resistance to access to information, but from the state standpoint, I understand when you look at trails, you're looking at more than kinship care. You're looking at a lot of information that might not have been within the scope of our audit. Um, I don't think that should prevent us from being able to look at the information, but the state and the department had a different opinion and finally it got clarified to a point. I think we made a lot of progress. Uh, and I know the city attorney's office is working on, you know, just what about the rest of the information? What can we look at? and what can't we look at, and it might be state law and it might be federal law that prevents us from looking at it. So it's complicated, and uh, I appreciate the department's willingness to continue to work with us on this. Um, I do have a question about the appendix. Um, on page 52, figure 12, kinship caregivers by relationship, we have 16% that are no relation, and that, that doesn't make sense to me that a kinship care could be given by someone who's either unknown or no relation to the uh, individual. How does that work? It could be a friend, right? Correct. Yeah, kinship in this state is, is pretty widely defined, so it could be a coach, it could be a teacher, it could be a neighbor, it could be mom's best friend that they consider an auntie. Okay. Um, so it's pretty, it's a pretty wide definition um, for those that are known um, to youth and kids. We want them to be with people that they are familiar with when able, and that's not always um, blood relatives. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Our third and final appendix begins on page 64. In it, we discuss our approach to and methodologies for getting input from kinship caregivers and Denver Human Services caseworkers and support staff, as well as our analysis of caseworker turnover rates between January of 2018 and June of 2022. And that concludes our presentation this morning. So I welcome any final comments or questions. Anything from the department? 
I'd like to offer some final comments. Uh, first of all, I appreciate the auditors uh, having highlighted the fact that we are a state-supervised county-administered system. I think that's an important relationship to acknowledge in the audit. I also uh, want to uh, reflect back on a comment that my predecessor in the executive director's office had made and the former city auditor, Don Mares, uh, who in coming into the executive director's office and uh, addressing some of the findings associated with a previous audit having been completed by your office had said there's nothing like a good audit. Um, and and I, I've held that in the back of my mind for, an, well, since it came out of his mouth, because I don't think I'd really thought of it in that term. Um, but I, I just, I, I wanna recognize that in the state supervised county administered system, our programs such as child welfare and Medicaid and SNAP or food assistance are reviewed constantly. There's entire divisions established within the Colorado Department of Human Services that focus on compliance measures related to those programs being delivered, but very much focused on the transactional or client level. And so having a systemic independent review of our systems really helps to inform us in a continuous quality improvement effort that we all strive to adopt and uh, implement. And so the, the value going forward with the results of the audit and for the seven recommendations that have been made and to which we have agreed is that by doing so, we would expect to see some improvement in our practices that ultimately reflect in better services being delivered to our clients and our families. So I just wanted to have a, an opportunity to thank the um, audit team and the committee uh, and you, Auditor O'Brien, for sh uh, spotlighting this very important effort. Well, thank you, Jay. And I think that's what we're all, uh, the outcome we all want is better service to those individuals that are in out-of-home placement as well as the rest of the clientele that you serve. So thank you for what you do. Okay, thank you. Uh, we've got another assessment report on programmable logic controllers. If we could take a minute to let people reseat themselves.
introduce uh, the people from CP Cyber uh, and Paul, welcome. And I'll ask you to introduce your team as we go through the topic. Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Auditor. Um, my name is Nick Jamrogla. I'm the Information Systems Audit Lead here in the Auditor's Office. Um, we're here to, today to discuss the uh, cybersecurity report about programmable logic controllers. Um, assisting me with this audit was my co colleagues Rob Farrell and Dave Hancock, who work on this assessment as well. So joining us today is our third-party uh, firm, CP Cyber, who we've worked with over the years with uh, and several representatives from Technology Services. Um, I just want to take a moment to thank Technology Services and uh, the other personnel that assisted us in this assessment and their continued support. Um, I'd like to invite Bill to introduce his team and then Technology Services to introduce their team as well. Hi, Bill Everett. The Levert partner with uh, CP Cyber, and then to my right here is Donnie McLaughlin, lead on this engagement. We had other folks like Brian as well on this engagement. Thank you. Uh, if we could speak into the mic, I mean, it's not the hello. best mic. Uh, hello, hello. I think it's on, but uh, I think the closer you are, the better. Um, <laughs> Paul? Brian Otter, O'Brien, uh, audit committee members. Uh, our pleasure to be here this morning. I'm Paul Cresser. I'm the Deputy Chief Information Officer in Technology Services. I'm joined this morning by our new Chief Data and Information Security Officer, Ashley Bolton, and our Information Security Manager, Todd Deering. We also have uh, other um, members of Technology Services in, our, in the audience this morning as well. Hey, thank you. All right, we'll uh, hand it over to CP Cyber. Okay. So, as the auditor said, we're going to talk about programmable logic controllers, uh, how they function, the risks associated with them, and we'll discuss mitigating controls and frameworks that help mitigate the risk associated with the programmable logic controllers. So, the first thing we, you know, ask are what are programmable logic controllers? Um, they are computer control systems that are commonly used in industrial control and automation uh, applications. They are responsible for controlling uh, various processes and machines within a facility, um, whether that's uh, out, outdoors, remote, or you know something like wastewater. Um, how do they function? Well, programmable logic controllers, they get input from sensors, and then, they, then the programmed logic processes, the, the, it processes the input using the logic um, that's been programmed to control the real world, real world output. Um, devices such as motors, lights, speakers, doors, water, uh, I mean anything that you can imagine. Next slide. Applications of programmable logic controllers uh, are valves and sensors that control water flow such as wastewater traffic lights um, for Department of Transportation. Um, they all use um, them based on inputs from cameras and road sensors, pedestrian walk buttons, all of that are programmable logic controllers. Uh, most commonly though, commonly though, programmable logic controllers can be found in many homes. Uh, sprinkler systems use 
programmable logic controllers to schedule the opening and closing of the valves for the sprinkler. Additional sensors can be used in that sprinkler system to detect rainfall uh, and simplistically send a signal to prevent the, the waste of water uh, if it rains. Any questions so far on programmable logic controllers? So if I drive by a park and the sprinklers are on and it's raining, that means that the program programmable logic controller lacks a certain function to notice that it's raining out. Correct, yeah. yeah. So it either doesn't have that sensor or that sensor is not working. Yeah. So here's a diagram of how programmable logic controllers function. The input on the left uh, is where the control unit or the, the data is collected through the sensors. Then the data is sent to process by the control processing unit. Um, once it's sent there, then the, the logic behind that tells the real, real world devices what to do. Um, and so using that example again for the sprinkler systems, that uh, rain detection sensor would then sell, tell the control unit, yes, no, it's, it's raining. And depending on that, it will open the valve for the, the sprinkler system. And so there's logic behind that that's, that's programmed into that. Um, that prevents either that valve from opening or closing. And the same concept can be used at, for various different applications and sensors. Um, you know, one sensor is water level, it raises up, and so then a valve will open, uh, it goes back down, and that valve closes. So it can maintain water pressure or water levels, um, you know, say at a pool, at a community pool, it can do that. Next slide. So, we're gonna talk about the risk associated with programmable logic controllers. Um, like any computer-based system, uh, programmable logic controllers are also vulnerable to security risk. A nefarious actor gaining unauthorized access to one of these systems um, is a significant risk as they would be able to do anything from changing the temperature um, to in, in a building to even shutting down the facility because they can turn off or, or change um, you know, the, the heating and air system or um, anything that's controlled by, by these systems uh, can be manipulated if someone gains access. Security breaches in regard to programmable logic controllers could have significant consequences ranging from financial loss, damage to a facility, uh, as well as injury and, and sometimes fatalities. For example, programmable logic controllers often control chemical processes um, in water pur purification uh, and even your local pool. So if that water purification system is using programmable logic controllers to um, detect and put more chlorine, less chlorine into the water, if that's altered or changed um, in any way nefariously, then it can raise or lower those levels in the water. Some examples of program programmable logic controllers that have caused real-world significant impact. Um, the first one we have is in 2010, Iran's nuclear um, facility was targeted. Um, it caused the facilities to malfunction, uh, damaging uh, some of the facilities, and then it also caused production loss in that facility. Another example would be the Kansas power plant in 2017, where hackers gained access 
causing that plant to malfunction. Um, and a byproduct of that was uh, some radiation was released uh, into that surrounding area. And so while the city and county of Denver doesn't have anything quite that serious, um, the infrastructure uh, is um, controlled by these programmable, log programmable logic controllers. And if something were to happen, it can cause significant operation um, failures. Any questions on the risk? Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around the, the uh, scope of a programmable logic controller. Is it, it would that, in that situation, is there one per crosswalk or is there one somewhere, you know, downtown that yeah. is talking to all of them? Or <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, typically the lights, they do have a, a system or the, the big box at the light that is its own unit, um, but there is some remote, you know, ac there could be some remote access to that, that system to allow changes or control, but by design, say the traffic lights, those specifically are designed so it's a controlled environment mm -hmm. that, you know, that box is controlling that light. Okay, so the joker couldn't get the downtown in and then turn all the lights green. <laughs> Um, no, there's other things in, in place to prevent that, but um, it, it depends on how it's set up too. So it, if, if things are set up so that you can remotely access and manage these systems, then it, that's possible. But, um, you know, I, I would hope that that wouldn't be possible. So any other questions? Yeah. So now we're going to talk about some frameworks, um, such as the International um, Electrotechnical Commission 61131, um, or the National uh, Institute of Standards and Technology Cybersecurity Framework. Those are both frameworks that um, exist that help to, uh, organizations build a, ma a mature security strategy to protect these systems. Um, in those frameworks and strategies, some key controls that they mention are network, network segmentation, which um, that's where access to these systems are limited or cut off from the rest of other systems. So we have, um, and, and it prevents remote access. So for example, um, a lot of these systems, you have to physically be there to control them, manage them, change them. It, you can't get to them you know, remotely from another computer. Um, that would be segmentation. You can't get to them without actually doing, going there and doing something different. Another key control is um, application layer access control. So that would be um, using the applications that control and manage these and setting user roles so that um, you're not providing access to just anyone with an account, you know, city and county of Denver account. Um, they would need specific access to that application. Uh, that access should be audited, reviewed, controlled um, to prevent unauthorized access. Additionally, access to these should be monitored um, and um, you know, ensure that no nefarious actors are, are on those systems. And that concludes this report. Any questions? Questions? All right. Um, Next item, general business. Our next meeting is April 20th here in the Par Widener room. 
Um, and with that, I'd like to ask for a motion to go into executive session to discuss some confidential audit topics. Uh, is there any discussion? All in favor, say aye. Aye. Any opposed? We are in executive session. keeping score um, forum organizers have submitted this question on safety what are your ideas and Diana you'll be answering first what are your ideas for making the neighborhoods and corridors more pedestrian friendly especially along Hampton Yale and Colorado boulevards right um, those are streets Hampton um, Colorado Boulevard and Yale are busy they are busy busier than they've ever been. Um, as a child, I was hit when I was on my bike crossing the street on Yale. Um, I know that it can be dangerous not only for um, people uh, going to work, but for also those who are in recreation. I think that we need to be able to have a transportation system. Um, back in the day, we used to have what was called the B line, and it went from U Hills all the way down to Cherry Creek. I think that those kind of systems can be put back into place to be able to help our citizens in Southeast Denver get around um, and be able to move through our district. Um, we also have a number of high school students that are on the corners of Hampton and um, Monaco and their safety is key and important as to how they can also make it to school in a safe way. Um, we really need to make sure that our crossings across those streets are, are important and have not only trails but the flashing lights to be able to make sure that we have a safe community. Diana, thank you for that. Tony, same question. What are your ideas for making neighborhoods and corridors more pedestrian friendly, specifically Yale, Hampton, and Colorado Boulevard? Sure, I think we have to uh, reframe the conversation around transportation and think more of it through the lens of mobility and how we move people. I think starting there with folks that might not have cars, uh, our children, our elders, and those that are differently abled. Um, one thing that I'd like to see is more transportation by folks on bicycles. I was able to get a rebate uh, for an e-bike, and that's been wonderful. It's allowed my wife and I to go down to be a one-car family. However, bike parking uh, is an issue that we need to address. Um, we need to work on District 4 connectivity by working with regional partners to increase potential bus rapid transit, protected bike lanes, and other multimodal options. Uh, Southeast Denver and District 4 is relatively spread out. I think that there's a model in Montbello that has been used called the Montbello Connector, and that's an on-demand um, connector that allows people to get to doctor's appointments, um, grocery stores, and things along those lines. And so I think that that model uh, as it already exists is something that we could potentially replicate in Southeast Denver. Very good, Tony. Diana, thank you. Moving on to round four, um, and Tony, we'll start with you. District four is home to a large population of senior citizens. What are your ideas for improving outreach to seniors and helping them to find the resources that they need? Sure. 
My parents are in their 80s and they've suffered some health, health issues over the last couple of years. And so my sister and I and my immediate family knows firsthand what it's like to care for them and be sure that their housing needs are suitable for um, where they are in their lives. Um, we've knocked on over 3,000 doors uh, so far. And I think that that outreach first starts with meeting seniors uh, where they are, you know, going to their homes, going to places where they gather. There's already a wonderful existing event that Councilwoman Black puts on, the Senior Luncheon, that draws seniors from all over the district. And I think that's a good anchor point for being engaged with our seniors. When we think about uh, accessory dwelling units, I'd like to find a way to incentivize those units in District 4 so that they can be for caretakers to live in that are taking care of our seniors or potentially as um, they could rent out the main property and live in the accessory dwelling unit so they could have income uh, to support them as they age in place. So I think that outreach is extremely critical and I look forward to doing that uh, if elected. Tony, thank you. Diana, same question. District 4 is home to a large population of senior citizens. What are your ideas for improving outreach to seniors and helping them to find the resources that they need? Thank you. Um, this one is near and dear to my heart. Um, my mom still lives in the house that we grew up in. Um, it's a tri-level. We have an escalator chair for her. Um, and like families do, we just care for her as we, as we can to make sure that she has meals, to make sure that she um, has the support that she needs during the day. Um, I had my father passed away this past fall, and that really brought home all of the different services that are available, not only in our community, but across the city, and the resources to be able to bring in that home health care um, with the EMTs and also um, in his transportation and, um, and health needs. I think that we have things that we can build on, absolutely the senior lunch, but we also need to think about how we are connecting seniors with our schools, opening them up to be able to have places for them to gather, as well as the senior rec centers. I think that we have a lot of potential, um, and our seniors have just a wealth of knowledge and um, information for our community. Diana, thank you. Tony, thank you. Uh, these next two questions are specific to each candidate. So I'm going to start with Diana, and this is from your website. Um, this is a quote, Diana believes that is, it is inhumane for people to live outside. So some people say they prefer to live on the streets. How as a council person would you convince individuals who do not feel shelter is a better place for them? Thank you. I I do believe that it is inhumane to let people live outside. Um, and we really need to be able to bring people inside um, and to provide supportive housing um, for our for our unhoused um, neighbors. Um, I wanna do a few things. One, I wanna look at some of the data. One of the things that we aren't talking about are children and families that are unhoused. They would be a top priority for me to be able to, sh to make sure that they have educational outcomes and health out outcomes um, in being able to be housed. I think we need to look at more housing and improving our housing stock. And we also need to wrap around supportive services that include mental health, um, services, substance abuse, and employment support. But we also need to shift from being reactive to proactive in how we are working with our homeless population and strategies um, to prevent them from becoming homeless in the first place. I think that includes transitional housing and really building opportunities for people to have a more stable place to thrive. Thank you for that, Diana. Tony, this question comes directly from your website. You have suggested the need to, quote, accelerate Denver's climate protection five-year plan. 
So the question is, tell us where is Denver in its five-year plan and how as a council person could you speed up this process? Sure, I think that climate change is an existential crisis that we've been overlooking for quite some time. Everything from water use to clean air to clean water, I think there's a lot that city council can do to expedite that plan. Um, we need to make the availability of xeriscaping more affordable for people in Southeast Denver so they can conserve water. Um, my wife and I were able to remove a patch of grass between my neighbor's driveway and my driveway. We come from a, a place of privilege where we were able to avoid, afford that xeriscaping, and I did a lot of the, uh, the labor myself. I think we need to look also at uh, that 15-minute neighborhood concept and its impact on the environment. In a 15-minute neighborhood concept, all amenities that folks need are within a 15-minute walk or 15-minute bike ride from their home. Uh, what that does for connected, vibrant communities and its impact on the environment uh, can be tremendous. So I think that that's something we really need to focus on, and that can be addressed through bringing gentle, gentle density to Southeast Denver. Tony, we appreciate that. Diana, we appreciate your answers, both very robust and uh, informational, educational. Um, we're moving on to round seven, which is one-on-one. -on -one, one -on -one. Now, in this round, it's going to be you, the candidates, asking questions of one another. Each of you will ask your opponent a question, or if you choose, you can use your time for rebuttal to something you've heard earlier. We will go in ballot order once again, so Tony, you will be up first, and you can, either, you can either ask Diana a question or you can use this time right now for a rebuttal. And if you ask Diana a question, Diana will have 45 seconds to answer that question. Hope you got all that. Yes. Okay, Tony. I'd like to ask her a question. You, oh, okay. you go for it. Um, Diana, what's your favorite restaurant in District 4? Mm, I have a few favorite restaurants. Uh, I really like Faux Real uh, Saigon, which is over there um, in on, uh, gosh, right over there by the Oasis uh, nightclub. Um, it's a great restaurant, wonderful pho, um, but I also like the Bagel Deli. Actually, the New York Deli is a good one too. Um, Zane's, we just went there the other night um, and had some, uh, uh, had some pizza and it was pretty fantastic. Thank you, Diana. Yeah. Thank you, Tony, for the question. Um, I think I've been to a couple of those. Places. I know. Definitely the We've bagel got some place. great restaurants. That's we off need Hamden, more. right? Yeah, the yeah. bagel deli. Right? <laughs> yes. We need okay. more. <laughs> for Diana, your chance to either ask Tony a direct question or use your time for rebuttal to something you heard earlier. And uh, if you ask Tony a question, then Tony, again, you will have 45 seconds to answer Diana's question. So, Diana, your turn for question or comment. Sure. Um, so I have a background in early childhood education. I think it's incredibly important, the brain development that happens um, early on. I am very curious. You asked me about my favorite book to read. What is the book that you are reading your son right now? Gosh. Um, we got a collection of books when we visited um, East Africa, and it's called a Tinga Tinga collection, mm -hmm. um, which is language that they use uh, in East Africa and in that collection they have what it looks like to wake up, uh, what it looks like to, to share and eat, and of mm -hmm. course um, a good night story. And so uh, one approach we've taken with my son is to be sure that we're reading a lot of uh, multicultural books, um, and especially around uh, this month being African American History Month, uh, we've been reading a, a lot of books that hopefully expose him uh, to a lot of different cultures. 
Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Diana, for that question. Now we're moving on. We're going to have some fun. This is called the lightning round, and it's time for each of you candidates to answer several questions in quick succession, so to speak, um, with a simple yes, no, or pass. Um, only yes, no, or pass, no expanding. That's what my directions say okay. right here. Um, <laughs> we'll return to ballot order and begin with you, Tony. Um, and then I'll ask Diana the same question. Are you bilingual? No. I guess I don't have a need to ask the follow-up question, <laughs> which is, do you speak Spanish? Um, same question for you, Diana. Yes. Yes and yes. Yes, claro okay. que sí. Very good. Um, Diana, we'll start with you. Do you own an electric bike or an electric vehicle? No, I don't. I have a hybrid. Um, we have a hybrid car, and my daughter owns an electric bike, but I really want one. Got it. Tony? Yes. No. Yes, I have an e-bike that I love that I got through the rebike. You rebates. talked about that mm -hmm. earlier this evening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, i got to get one of those. They're awesome. Do you support the reduction of regulations for social marijuana clubs? So reduction... Do you support the reduction of regulations? No. Yes. Do you support the reduction of regulations? Thank you both. Um, Diana, we'll start with you. Should City Council make any changes to the voter-approved sidewalks ordinance? Yes. Should. Yes. Okay. We've got our answer. And then, Tony, is affordable housing your first priority? Yes. Is affordable housing your first priority? Yes. Okay. Diana, we'll start with you. Would you support amending the city charter to establish a maximum of two terms for both the mayor and city council members instead of three terms? Yes. Tony, same question for you. Two terms as opposed to the current system, which is three terms. Yes. Okay. Tony, we'll start with you on this one. If I park in a no parking zone or my parking meter expires somewhere downtown, I am issued a ticket or fine. Do you think that if I don't shovel my sidewalk and it becomes icy or impossible to navigate, I should be equally ticketed or fined? Yes. Diana, same question for you. If I park in a no parking zone or a parking meter expires, I'm issued a ticket or fine. Do you think if I don't shovel my sidewalk and it becomes impossible to navigate, should I face the same kind of fine? Yes. Thank you very much. Okay, candidates, that was the lightning round. Thank you both very much. Now we're moving on to closing statements. And that brings us to the end of the Q&A, obviously. Each candidate will now have one minute for a closing statement, and we will reverse the order of our opening statement. So, Diana, it's, it, you're, it's your lucky night. You get to go first with your, with your closing <laughs> statement. Yes, Diana, you have one minute for a closing statement. Great. Thank you. This is an important election, and who you elect to represent Southeast Denver matters. I am the candidate that will keep Southeast Denver as my top priority and represent the interests of the community. Time and time again through my 30-year career, I have been in situations to build community, listen, and lean into tough situations. My strengths lie in the fact that I am a collaborative decision, decision maker, I'm a learner, and I have a long history of bringing people together. In order to get things done on City Council, you need to be able to work with other people to get things done. As the CEO of an organization that employs over 100 people annually and serves hundreds of children and families, I brought our team together to provide services and resources during the pandemic. 
This steadfast focus is needed as we tackle huge issues facing our city. When things are challenging, I lean in, and this is where my strength lies. I am proud to be endorsed by the current city councilwoman, Kendra Black. I will continue a legacy of strong women leading and showing up for Southeast Denver. I am Diana Romero Campbell, and I ask for your vote as the next city councilwoman. Diana, thank you so much. And Tony, and now it's your turn to offer your closing statement to our audience. You have one minute. Thanks again for hosting us this evening. Denver is at a critical inflection point. This is arguably the most important election in recent Denver history. And yes, who you vote for definitely does matter. My parents are in their 80s and I have a 14-month-old son. I'm focused on the plight of our seniors, our children, and everyone in between. Southeast Denver has the chance to lead the way in what it looks like to address complex issues with data-driven and research-based solutions. Truly transformational change starts at the grassroots level and works its way up. All politics are definitely local. My name is Tony Pickford and I hope to be the next city council person to represent Southeast Denver's District 4. Please visit pigfordfordenver.com to learn more about our campaign and all the fun ways that you can volunteer and I hope to earn your support and vote. Thank you. Tony, thank you. Diana, thank you. You both did wonderfully tonight. And audience, now it's your turn. Show your appreciation for the candidates for this council district. Thank you both very much. And uh, thank, thank you all and our Denver Decides partners, which include Interneighborhood Cooperation and the League of Women Voters of Denver. Denver Decides is presented by Denver 8 TV. We hope we have given you a fair look at each of the candidates vying to represent those of you in District 4 on Denver's City Council. Remember, Denver's municipal election is taking place earlier than ever before on Tuesday, April 4th. That's Election Day. Be sure you are registered and make your voice heard. Get out there and vote. For complete election information online, go to denverdecides.com or denver7.com slash denverdecides. I'm Russell Haythorn from Denver 7. Thank you all for joining us. I believe deeply that there's a lot more that connects us than that divides us. And um, I think it's a really important value for me to try to listen both to what people say, but also to listen past their words to try to understand what they mean. I think one of the most important things a leader can do is both um, you know, share a vision, but include people in being able to have access um, to help improve, shape, um, and participate in that vision. Inevitably, in life, we are going to face challenges. So the first thing that I would say is make sure you are dedicated to your own improvement. 
um, and work hard at being the best that you can be um, because that will always help you be better in facing difficult times. The second thing I would say is work on, at least for me, I needed to work on my confidence around that, uh, particularly when there are big challenges. It can feel like it's impossible um, I myself can get plagued with beliefs like, I don't know how to do this, I've never done this, I can't do this. You know, if you've done your work on being the best that you can be, for me it was really important to build my confidence that I could pull on that to help myself as I faced big challenges. And then the third thing I would say is like, none of us do this alone. And the more we can build the strength of the team, in facing tough challenges, the better off we're going to be. I would definitely say um, to other people, you, you just have to be kind to yourself. Um, and, you know, I probably have more laundry that needs to be washed than I would like to admit. Um, but you just have to, like, you just have to be kind to yourself while you're trying to balance and juggle. Hello, I'm Denver 7's Micah Smith and welcome to Denver Decides. Denver Decides is a community partnership dedicated to accessible and transparent elections. The partnership includes the League of Women Voters of Denver and Interneighborhood Cooperation and is presented by Denver 8 TV. Today we are presenting a candidate forum in anticipation of the municipal election coming up on Tuesday, April 4th. Among other offices, this election includes the candidate vying to represent District 6 as a member of Denver City Council. District 6 encompasses parts of Central, South, and Southeast Denver. For roughly down, from roughly Downing Street on the west to Quebec on the east, and from First Avenue on the north to Dartmouth on the south. Our format is a pretty standard one. The candidate will have timed opening and closing statements, followed by rounds of questions that have been submitted by the organizers of the forum. Our timer monitor is out front where the candidate can see it. And you may have noted that I'm using the term candidate here in the introduction and not candidates. That is because the candidate in this contest has no opposition. So let's begin by meeting that candidate seeking re-election to continue to represent District 6 as your city council representative. Standing to my right is Paul Cashman. Welcome, Mr. Cashman. Thank you, Micah. All right. So we will begin with a one-minute opening statement from you, and we usually proceed in ballot order with these statements. So since yours is the only name on the ballot for District 6, you may begin, and you have one minute. Thank you. Uh, my name is Paul Cashman, and I'm running to serve my third and final term as the representative on City Council for Denver District 6. I came to Colorado from New Jersey in the fall of 1971, and after exploring the mountains and the metro area for a few years, I found my way to an affordable, 
working class uh, neighborhood east of Downing Street called Washington Park, where I was able to rent a small two-bedroom bungalow actually facing the north edge of the park for $280 a month. At that point in my life, I was a full-time single parent of two small children, so I was grateful to have found this nice, affordable home for our family, as well as uh, full-time child care so I could go out and work to support my family. I ran for council in 2015 uh, to, to be a voice of reason uh, between the people that would put a fence around our city and those that would turn its future over to the uh, whims of the private market. I had been working for a local South Denver newspaper where I stayed for 36 years and got a close-up view of the changes taking place in the neighborhoods I covered as well as the city as a whole. For a bunch of years, I reported on the good things that came along with our growth from uh, Cowtown to Big City as well as the downsides. I look forward to joining in a renewed council role in guiding our gro growth moving forward. And Paul, now we have questions for you submitted by the forum organizers and you'll have one minute to answer. In District 6, or is District 6 a safe place to live and work? And are the streets as safe as they could or should be? South Denver is a safe place to live and work, but right now there's a feeling amongst the residents that it's not as safe as it used to be and not as safe as they'd like it to be. Um, we need to certainly uh, have uh, an adequate uh, uh, presence of uh, badge and gun policing, but more than that, over the past couple of years, the discussion nationwide has shifted to how do we increase public safety from a public health perspective. We need to stop the flow of people who find the only way to get their needs met is through criminal behavior. I've talked to the police chief, the director of safety, the DA, and they all say we can't ar arrest our way out of crime. We need to increase our mental health services, our drug treatment services. We need to make child care more affordable and increase our after-school programming. Right. And our next question for Paul Cashman. What do you see as the biggest challenges and strengths facing neighborhoods in your district? And how does your background and experience set you up as the best candidate to address these issues? Well, I think our neighborhoods, as well as neighborhoods throughout Denver, have on their mind crime is too high, homelessness is, is, is out of control, um, the, uh, it's too expensive to live in Denver, uh, the safety on our streets needs to be improved. Um, as far, I've been working um, since I came on council to uh, get residents more involved in their own governance. When I first thing I did on council was to uh, see that we instituted a 30-minute period before our Monday night meetings so anybody can come and address council as a whole. Uh, I'm waiting uh, for a report that's due uh, the end of uh, March uh, on the possibility of establishing an office of community engagement to really bring people into their own governance. Um, the main thing as far as safety on our streets, we not only need to reduce speeds that people are driving, but we need to re-engineer our streets so people have to drive more carefully. 
And our next question from our forum, forum organizers for you, Paul, is many neighborhood residents feel that their input is gathered only after development projects have been planned. Do you support reworking the neighborhood planning initiative process to allow for greater input from residents at the planning and approval stages of neighborhood development initiatives? Yeah, a great question. And yes, I, I do support re-examining the NPI process. And as a matter of fact, um, right now, uh, the large part of my district between Colorado Boulevard and Quebec Street is part of the Near Southeast Neighborhoods Planning Initiative. Uh, there's a, a, a West Side plan going on. Um, when those plans are completed, uh, community planning and development plans on its own to reevaluate how that process goes. But most importantly, um, uh, the city created a system of registered neighborhood organizations in 1979 and charged them with telling their residents what the city is doing and then coming back and telling the city what the residents think. But they provided no funding and no tools for those organizations to get that work done. That's why I'm pushing for the creation of an office of community empowerment that many of our sister cities have that do those things. I've also piloted a couple of projects in out of my own district budget that are, are bringing important uh, information to residents on how the city works, as well as funding for community building pro projects. And Paul, that brings us to the last of the prepared questions from our organizers. Do you support the ballot issue on the Park Hill Golf Course property? If so, why? If not, why not? Um, no, I don't support it. I, I've been uh, consistent in uh, voting against the rezoning and uh, bringing it to the ballot and other elements, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the uh, plan between the city and the developer uh, as far as a development agreement. There are a number of good things in the plan, but they shouldn't be built on uh, open space. Uh, we have a critical need for affordable housing in our community, but at the same time, we have uh, an equally, if not greater, critical need for open space for a series of environmental reasons. Um, I'm very concerned about setting a precedent where we find our space to build on open space. What would stop us in the future from looking at areas like the 18th hole of uh, Welsher Golf Course, which has a frontage of a quarter to a half mile on Colorado Boulevard, um, looking at other areas of established green space to get our needs met. We need to build affordable housing. We need to build it on areas that aren't set aside for open space. Thank you, Paul. Well, now it's time for the lightning round, something we do in the other candidate forums. And so we'll do a mini version with you. Okay. I'll ask you a few quick questions and we ask that you answer with a simple yes, no, or pass, and only yes, no, or pass, no expanding. Your first question, do you own an electric bike or vehicle? Electric bike, yes. Yes. <laughs> do you support the reduction of regulations for social marijuana clubs? Probably. Yes, okay. Should, should City Council make any changes to the voter-approved sidewalks ordinance? Yes. Is affordable housing your first priority? 
No. Would you support amending the city charter to establish a maximum of two terms for both the mayor and city council members instead of three terms? No. In the last 30 days, have you used mass transit, a bike, or walked for business purposes or to get to work? Yes. Have you spent any time on a one-on-one -on -one basis with a person experiencing homelessness? Absolutely, yes. Have you installed any sort of alternative source of energy for your home, like solar panels or a windmill? No. All right. That brings us to the end of our Q&A segments. And we now move on to closing statements. So Paul Cashman is the only candidate for city council to represent District 6. And Paul, your closing statement, please. Well, thank you, Micah. And thanks so much to Interneighborhood Cooperation uh, the Denver League of Women Voters and Channel 8 for this chance to speak to uh, Denver's voters. Since serving on city council, I've made it my focus to increase residents' ability to participate actively in their own governance. As I mentioned, shortly after taking office, I sponsored a rule change that for the first time has given hundreds of Denverites uh, the time to speak to the full council for 30 minutes before every night every Monday night meeting, and those meetings are televised as well as the rest of Council's work. I'm very pleased that by mid-March we'll get the results of the study I got into the 2022 budget to examine the feasibility of creating an Office of Community Engagement that would not only inform people of what's going on in the city, 